0: Hello and welcome to Climate 101. This episode, we are going to be talking about what on earth is a carbon budget. What is a carbon budget? So let's get to it. To some extent, any goal that we set in terms of climate change is going to be arbitrary. I think this is important to emphasize. So we'll often talk about 2 degrees Celsius of warming as a, a target when once it was considered a dangerous upper limit that would take us beyond the range of temperatures that historically human civilizations have lived in throughout the past. But just because we have this two degrees target or two degrees limit, this doesn't mean that the world at 1.9C, where we've technically succeeded at the Paris Agreement, is fine, and the world at 2one Celsius above the pre-industrial average, is some kind of apocalyptic hellscape. I mean, there are some systems in nature that can quite abruptly transition from flourishing or doing okay to dying, such as the coral reefs, which in recent years have slipped past the point of no return, and now we're seeing these regular mass bleaching events where lots of the coral reefs die off each year. But there are other climate impacts, such as the disruption to patterns of rainfall that people depend on for food, the impact on extreme weather events and extreme heat waves, the melting of ice sheets and that results in a sea level rise. Th- these impacts aren't as abrupt as that generally, and instead we expect them to in the main, get worse with each fraction of a degree of warming that we experience. So there's not some huge difference between 1.9C and 2.1C, just because we've crossed this magical 2 degrees temperature threshold. Now, scientists might disagree on how well we can predict things like carbon cycle feedbacks, that is to say, changes to the Earth system that will result in more carbon dioxide being emitted from natural processes, as well as the human anthropogenic emissions that we're putting into the atmosphere people might disagree on how well we can predict these carbon cycle feedbacks that could result in the whole climate system spiralling out of human control. But it's clear that the risks of something like this happening can only increase as we push the climate system further and further from the stable Holocene state that it's happily existed in for so many years. Now it's worth saying of course that we are already living in a climate changed world. So depending on what you take as your baseline temperature, we've already warmed by something between 0.9 and 1.1 degrees Celsius on average from the pre-industrial state of the climate. Now the impacts are only going to become more extreme over time, and this isn't uniform either, so there are some areas, particularly in high northern latitudes, that have warmed by a lot more than that on average. Now I say all of these disclaimers at the start of the episode, simply to point out that While we often frame the discussion of climate change in terms of particular temperature targets and what we would need to do to avoid getting to that level of climate change, it's really not the only way of thinking about it. And I think it's important to stress that the reality is, if we exceed one of these temperature targets, if we go above 1.5C of warming or 2C of warming or 2.5C of warming, whatever it may be, it will still be worth doing all we can to decarbonize as rapidly as possible and stop emitting carbon dioxide and avoid further warming in the future but this is this isn't a problem that switches on and off with some arbitrary target it accumulates the temperature targets are there in that they give us some nominal notional barrier to prevent too much climate damage from accruing and accumulating it's convenient to talk about them to give us something concrete to model to avoid to form international agreements around but they are not the be-all and end-all of climate change and we are going to be living with damages from climate change that are already around us now and will continue to get worse even if we do manage to stick to below the 2C target. The flip side to that of course is that if we fail in the Paris Agreement that doesn't mean that we're doomed. With all that said we're going to talk about the concept of carbon budgets and the associated temperature targets today. Broadly speaking, a carbon budget is the cumulative amount of CO2 that can be emitted by humanity while staying within a certain temperature target with a certain level of probability. The idea here is that we can calculate the amount of CO2 that we could still emit and stay below, say, 2 degrees Celsius. And once we know how much CO2 we can emit, that gives us a guideline for humanity on how quickly we need to cut emissions. So let's unpack this a little bit. You might hear someone say, for example, that we can emit 400 billion tonnes of CO2, cumulatively, from today, to have a 66% chance of staying below the 1.5c temperature target. How is this probability determined, and what's being included in this argument for a carbon budget? Now, firstly, you might be wondering, why is it that we're expressing this in terms of some probability of staying below a certain temperature range? And the reason for this is that it arises from our uncertainties about climate sensitivity, how much warming we can expect when CO2 concentrations change. There's actually been a very recent study that was published that narrows down our uncertainty on this, but there's still quite a bit of uncertainty about precisely what the climate sensitivity is. Since we don't know this number exactly, the best we can do is express it as a probability distribution. And this is, of course, familiar from all kinds of different Realms of life and physics, and indeed, since we can't measure anything precisely, it's best to always express it as some sort of probability distribution. In practice, it might be that your errors are small enough that you don't need to worry about that, but there's always some chance that there's some errors that are being made that need to be taken into account. So, part of the uncertainty or the error bar that comes with a carbon budget will be due to uncertainty around the climate sensitivity. So, if climate sensitivity turns out to be on the higher end of estimates, and the climate is more sensitive to CO2, then obviously you have a smaller carbon budget, you can't emit as much CO2, to get the same amount of warming. So for example, if we assume climate sensitivity to be at its median value from our distribution, as in the one in the middle, and then we calculate a carbon budget based on that, then there's a 50% chance that the climate sensitivity is higher, and a 50% chance that it's lower. That's what's implied by the probability distribution. And therefore, we can only say that there's a 50% probability that if we use up that whole carbon budget, we'll actually stay below 2 degrees Celsius. Already then, this can create some interesting issues with how people express carbon budgets, because the budget itself is different depending on what, with what certainty you want to keep to below a certain target. So for example, the IPCC's special report on 1.5 degrees Celsius, which came out in 2017, it gave a few different most likely carbon budgets for different levels of warming. They said that the carbon budget with a 66% chance of avoiding 1.5C was 420 gigatons of CO2, and the carbon budget with a 50% chance of avoiding 1.5C was 580 gigatons of CO2. So it's 420 or it's 580, depending on what probability you want to have of avoiding that temperature target. So that said, one of the first things that people like to call into question here is what's meant by setting a target. If you have made pledge to avoid 1.5C of warming, is it enough to take actions that only result in a 66% chance of avoiding 1.5 degrees Celsius? Or 50% so that you're more likely to avoid that warming than not? In many walks of life, promising a 50-50 chance or a 66% chance that you will meet your goal or target is not especially convincing. But if you want to be more stringent, and insist that your budget would result in, say, a 95% chance, almost certainty, that you won't exceed the 1.5c of warming, then you're going to have to have a much, much smaller carbon budget to account for the small chance that the climate is much more sensitive than we estimate it to be on average. Incidentally, the carbon budgets in the 1.5c report are the main source of the frankly kind of misleading 12 years to save the planet claim that was widely reported as the headline conclusion of that report, you've probably seen headlines about this. It was a meme that went around the internet a lot about climate change. Now this claim, as far as I can tell, seems to have been reached by people dividing the 66% budget of 1.5 degrees Celsius by the annual emissions of CO2 at the time, which were about 36 billion tons of CO2 a year. If you divide those two numbers together, you get pretty much exactly 12 years. But obviously, this is really an overly simplistic message to come out from the report, and one that I think is in fact too simplified to be that useful, and far more likely to confuse and mislead. For a start, that 12 years assumes that emissions don't change. If they increase, as they have done in pretty much every year except for 2008-9 and the new Covid crisis, then if they increase, then you have less time, because emissions are higher than they were at the start of the 12 years. If they decrease though rapidly due to climate policies that are designed to reduce them, then you have longer than 12 years. And this meme of just saying 12 years to save the planet etc, it it doesn't contain enough information. 12 years to do what? Say emissions are basically constant for 12 years, then we know that 1.5 C is very likely to be exceeded. That's bad, but it's not the end of the world. It's not like there's suddenly no point to climate action after 12 years. we still want to limit the damage from climate change as much as possible. However, if emissions really are the same in 2030 as they were when the 1.5c report was written, obviously we're finding it hard to cut emissions. And if that's true, then since emissions aren't going to drop suddenly to zero in 2031, the final temperature is much more likely to be a lot higher than 1.5c. Even if we started cutting emissions straight after that, the time it would take to get to net zero would guarantee further warming coming down the pipeline in future. So the 12 years to save the climate slogan, which I've seen in some truly ridiculous forms by people who don't really care about getting the science right, including 12 years of habitable climate, 12 years to save humanity, 12 years until the point of no return when feedback loops kick in and take the climate out of our hands, that was from Big Think, or 12 years to stop climate change, Metro. I mean, this slogan is a massive oversimplification, and it's not close to what the report actually said. It's misleading because, again, it gives the picture of the world dropping off some horrendous cliff in 12 years' time unless we do something, which is simply not what's going to happen. Now, I understand people's desire to create a sense of urgency around some certain time frame, but I don't know how effective it is at getting people to take action. Because what if people decide, oh, well, we've had 5, 10 of our 12 years or so obviously we haven't taken action, so there's no hope for us now. Or what if alternatively people say, I keep hearing these deadlines, you say it's five years, you say it's ten years, you say it's six months, what is it? It sounds like a, a false threat if it's made repeatedly. I I don't think it's an effective method of getting people to take action by putting this, this time frame in place. The truth is, though, that the situation is very, very urgent, because clearly 12 years is... The first goal of the Paris Agreement would be missed if we kept our emissions constant for 12 years. And that was a couple of years ago that was announced, so we've really only got a decade during which to massively cut emissions if we want to satisfy the Paris Agreement, which is a more full way of stating what they had said. But then what you're actually saying when you do that sort of framing is you're including the fact that we need to cut emissions significantly, as in global CO2 emissions need to fall by. 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70% in the next decade for us to have a decent shot at 1.5 degrees Celsius. So the reality is really that if we want to keep to below 1.5C, we really don't have any time to lose at all. Emissions have to start falling pretty much straight away for any kind of reasonable pathway to net zero that won't blow through that carbon budget. And the more climate action we can take now, the safer and less damaging the future will be for everyone. So away from some of the specifics of these carbon budgets, let's talk about the concept of a carbon budget more generally, because there are several important bits of science and debate that go into how they can be constructed and then how they are historically and politically used. Now it's not scientifically obvious at all that you can construct a simple carbon budget. Instead it relies on an observation that has come from climate modelling. This observation is that Regardless of the path you take to get there, the global mean temperature increase seems to depend approximately linearly on the cumulative emissions of CO2. In other words, within certain limits, the amount of temperature increase you get is approximately proportional to the total CO2 that you've emitted. And this allows you to define a new kind of climate sensitivity, which we call the transient climate response to cumulative emissions or TCRE. And what this is, it's a number, and it basically tells you when you emit a trillion tons of CO2 into the atmosphere, how much are you going to warm the climate. And we know that if you emit a trillion tons of CO2 into the atmosphere, the climate will likely warm by somewhere between 0.8 and 2.5 degrees Celsius, with the best estimate of around 1.4 degrees Celsius per trillion tons of carbon. Then, with this nice linear relationship between cumulative emissions and warming, you can say that every tonne of CO2 that's emitted gives you a certain amount of additional warming, and you can come up with basic estimates for how much CO2 you can emit and still likely remain below a given threshold of temperature increase. Now, this linear relation, where there's a direct proportionality here, is only an approximate relation, and at first glance it might be a surprising one. In the episode we did on greenhouse gases, we pointed out that the relationship between CO2 concentrations and radiative forcing is logarithmic. In other words, as additional molecules of CO2 fill in an increasingly opaque atmosphere to the infrared radiation that's escaping, each molecule is less effective at warming the planet, because more of the light that it would absorb has already been absorbed by other CO2 molecules as the concentration increases. So if you like you can imagine these molecules as absorbing all of the infrared photons as they come up from the earth and as the atmosphere is getting more and more packed with these molecules the chances that your photon has already been absorbed by a molecule increase and so adding more molecules eventually uh, is less effective at trapping the heat. So in terms of CO2 concentrations then the warming that we expect is logarithmic in nature. In other words it's the same every time that we double. So, if you ignore all the feedbacks in the system, you'd get the same effect in doubling CO2 concentrations from 250 parts per million to 500 parts per million. And then you'd get the same warming again if you double from 500 to 1000, although clearly the second doubling would require twice as much CO2 to end up in the atmosphere. So, how can we reconcile this logarithmic relationship with an approximately linear dependence of warming on CO2 emissions? Now, the answer does come from modelling, where these trends were first observed across a different range of models around 2010, leading to the development of the TCRE and carbon budgets. However, this specific question is well explored by a paper by McDougall and Friedlingstein in 2015, which is called The Origin and Limits of the Near Proportionality Between Temperature Change and Cumulative Carbon Emissions. So essentially what's happening here is, as you add more CO2 to the atmosphere, It's true that each CO2 molecule is less effective at trapping heat, but it's also true that as the planet warms and the atmosphere becomes more saturated with CO2, the oceans become less effective at taking up heat and CO2. Now the ocean is like a a vast regulator when it comes to CO2 emissions and the heat that they trap. Approximately half of the CO2 that we emit ends up dissolved in the oceans, but between 90 to 95 percent of the heat that's trapped by greenhouse gases ends up as a change in the ocean heat content. You can often view the role of the oceans in the Earth's climate as acting like a big inertial thermal bath. This will be familiar to anyone who's lived near the ocean. In this phase, the oceans absorbing heat are slowing down the surface warming that we'd normally expect to happen. Relatively small changes in the ability of the ocean to absorb this excess heat can result in large effects on the temperature at the surface. And of course you can see how the oceans work as this kind of thermal break that lags behind the forcing that's happening to the climate. It's similar to how there's a nice cooling breeze off the ocean during a warm day and then a nice warm breeze next to the ocean at night. In models then, it has been observed that under a wide range of different conditions, under a range of different modelled scenarios, the temperature does end up being roughly proportional to the cumulative CO2 emitted, regardless of the pathway that you took to get there. And this is likely due to these two effects compensating and cancelling each other out. The extra CO2 is less efficient at warming, but then the oceans have a diminishing ability to absorb the heat and CO2 that we're producing as we emit more. And that results in a larger fraction of that heat changing the surface temperature that we experience. And the result is that the total surface temperature change that we get does end up being approximately proportional to the total CO2 that we've emitted. So now to bring in the caveats. This is only true within certain limits. If we emit more than two trillion tons of CO2 the relationship does start to break down. If climate carbon feedback start to become more important, in other words if the natural emissions of CO2 from feedback such as forests dying off in the heat or methane being emitted when permafrost melts, then this relationship also breaks down because the emissions aren't just coming from us they're now coming from the planet as well. And so in that case, you can see that the linearity is not going to work so well. And one major thing to point out is that this ignores all of the non-CO2 ways in which we influence the climate, both regionally and globally. So for example, changing the albedo of the surface by cutting down forests and melting ice caps, emitting aerosols that interact with clouds and reflect additional sunlight to space, having a cooling effect, and also all of the non-CO2 emissions of greenhouse gases like methane and nitrous oxide, which have an impact on the climate. Now, the general argument when it's presented is that this is a CO2-only budget. We know that CO2 is the most important driver of anthropogenic climate change, so it makes sense to focus on that. And some further argue, although I would say this is still unclear, that the warming short-lived climate pollutants like methane approximately cancel out the cooling effect of aerosols at the moment. If that's true then this would mean that most of the warming we see is due to CO2 with the effects of these other pollutants cancelling each other out. That may be true of course but it does make the carbon budgets a little bit misleading. If we actually look at the trends that are taking place on earth at the moment and we might expect for the future there's no reason to expect that cancellation to continue into the future. As Europe got wealthier it instituted a lot of air pollution laws and substantially reduced the amount of aerosols that are emitted into the atmosphere due to their harmful health effects. This was also helped, of course, by Europe offshoring a lot of its industry to other parts of the world. Now, we might expect something similar to happen in China and India, as air pollution restrictions become tighter to reduce the urgent health issues associated with smog. We know that this is a big goal for both of the governments there. This will reduce aerosol pollution, and therefore reduce the cooling effect associated with those aerosols. Don't get me wrong, it's urgent to do this. Air pollution leads to one in six premature deaths globally, according to the UN, and it's frankly an international disgrace that we allow companies to pollute the atmosphere with such impunity and exacerbate health conditions for so many people. At the same time as aerosol emissions will likely reduce, though, it seems natural gas is only going to become more popular as countries move away from expensive coal. And in addition, as more and more people become wealthy enough to demand meat, the methane emissions from agriculture are only likely to increase. So to me at least, it seems most likely that the methane emissions will continue to increase in the near future, while aerosol emissions will decline. And this means that the net effect of non-CO2 will be towards short-term warming in the future. If this turns out to be true over the next few decades, then it means that we could easily exceed the 1.5C temperature target well before the 1.5c carbon budget is used up, and indeed some people argue that we may be close to exceeding it already. Carbon budget purists would argue that this would only be temporary, and if we could get a hold on the short-lived climate pollutants, we could return back under 1.5c relatively quickly, compared to the case where we've exceeded 1.5 due to CO2, and would then need negative emissions of CO2 to return to below 1.5. That is true, But since getting a hold of methane emissions means massive reforms in agriculture and other sectors, it's not clear that it will be all that easy. After all, if we wanted to zero out methane emissions tomorrow, we'd have to find some way of replacing all of our natural gas that we use, and we'd probably have to kill a lot of cows as well. This is the source, then, of one of the debates surrounding carbon budgets, and what it means to actually exceed a temperature target. Is a temporary overshoot allowed, providing we get temperatures back below 1.5C before the end of the century, as is the specification of the Paris Agreement, where the temperature goals refer to the end of the century only? What is the definition for surface temperature, anyway? Because depending on which data set you use for surface temperature, it can be a different number, based on how much you weight different regions and compensate for imperfect measurements. And similarly to this... Temperature increase relative to what? What are our goals here? Uh, What is the pre-industrial? What is the baseline? There are arguments over whether to define the pre-industrial era as the few decades surrounding the 1800s, where we know that human influence on the climate was minimal, but our measurements are also pretty bad, or whether to use a more near-term baseline for warming. Naturally, because this changes the definition of 1.5c of warming, it also changes the carbon budget that we have left. And indeed, it was changes in what the definition of temperature increase meant, which changed the carbon budget between the last big IPCC report and the latest one. The AR5 report, which was before the special report on 1.5c, had a much smaller carbon budget than we are currently using due to all of these different changes in definition. Carbon Brief, in its article on carbon budgets, summarises the causes behind some of these disagreements in the following way. They said that there are disagreements over what surface temperature actually refers to, the definition of the pre industrial temperature period, what observational temperature datasets should be used, what happens to non CO2 factors that are influencing the climate, and whether Earth system feedbacks like melting permafrost should be taken into account. So, again, like many debates in the climate space, I'm sure that some of this is going to seem really arcane and pedantic. But naturally, the implications of some of these minor emissions can be pretty huge. Between AR5's definition in the last report and the newer definition, we've gone from 1.5c being just three years of current emissions to 12 years. In other words, 1.5c goes from a hopeless target to something that one can just about dream as being attainable with unprecedented massive international action to cut emissions, just based on the definitions of the budget. The carbon budget and its definition is also important when it comes to trying to understand what level of carbon emissions humanity has left before we've conclusively failed at our Paris Agreement target. So disputes over its precise nature can have global importance. Personally, knowing a few of the people involved, I feel like there was some movement in the 1.5c report to try and come up with a way of defining the carbon budget that made the target still seem achievable to spur policymakers' interaction by saying that we can still reach one5 After all, the whole report was about the differences between 2 and 1.5, and what we would lose by exceeding Paris's first aspirational target of 1.5. So to investigate all of that, and then to say that 1.5 is impossible, would maybe be too depressing a conclusion for the report to reach. Even though, to all intents and purposes, barring something quite astounding, I think most people would agree that 1.5 is unreachable. Similarly, people can choose much smaller carbon budgets and more pessimistic definitions of temperature if they want to make a different argument. It's almost as if the idea of a carbon budget and temperature targets aren't really doing what they were supposed to. They're not actually getting people to agree on what we need them to do, and what we need to do as a species, because of all the leeway and flexibility that remains in interpreting and defining them. But this is just my opinion now. And sadly, estimates for carbon budgets are still a little bit all over the place. For example, we quoted the carbon budget from the IPCC report, which gives us a 66% chance of staying below 1.5 as 420 gigatons of CO2. But there was a paper in 2017 by Richard Miller et al. which argued that the actual budget was more like 540 billion tonnes of CO2, mostly due to changes in the models used and a different definition of the temperature baseline. Meanwhile, a paper by Jason Lowe of the Met Office and others in 2018, which attempts to take into account carbon cycle feedbacks, suggests that the definition might be as low as 70 billion tons of CO2. So someone will tell you it's 420, someone else will tell you it's 540, someone else will tell you it's 70. In a way, they're all right. Zeke Hosfather's 2015 article on Carbon Brief, How Much Carbon is Left to Limit Warming to 1.5C, draws together estimates from a whole range of different papers, Uh, with some way more in-depth analysis about why they're different than I'll go into here. But suffice it to say, even if you use the same methodology as the IPCC report, but with different definitions of temperature, you can get a carbon budget from anywhere between 260 to 570 billion tonnes of CO2. So now you can start to see why this 12 years meme is so unhelpful. Not only is the carbon budget for 1.5 not some kind of magical climate cliff edge, but plenty of respectable climate scientists disagree about when or whether we've actually exceeded it, or what it even is. So there's certainly not a magical deadline here. Even changing how you define global mean temperature can change this silly number quite reasonably from 7 years to 16 years. Now, beyond the technical fripperies of a carbon budget, there are of course other objections that people make to defining uh, mitigation of climate change in this way, Again, the idea of a budget that runs out sort of implies that you can safely emit billions of tons of CO2 into the atmosphere up to a point and then somehow it becomes unsafe because you've exceeded your budget. This is obviously not what is happening at all. The CO2 that we're emitting now is harming some people on average. It's making the world riskier in the future. It's certainly not safe to do it until our budget runs out. If you're sharing a kitchen in a flat you hardly agree on a deal that says it's okay to let the washing pile up in the sink as long as it doesn't hit the ceiling. But there is a concern that there is this permissive aspect to carbon budgets. Now one key point that's worth noting in this is how over the years the idea of temperature targets for climate change have been changed and corrupted. The idea of a carbon budget for two degrees celsius implicitly suggests that we can, and probably should, spend all of that budget to get there. We don't want to go over budget, but spending it on things as we try and cut our emissions is fine. And so two degrees Celsius has gone from a dangerous upper limit for climate change when it was first introduced, one that takes us well outside temperatures that the human race has ever experienced, into suddenly some kind of goal that we're aiming to hit by spending our carbon budget. And unfortunately you see things like this all over the place when it comes to uh, climate politics, I suppose, more than climate science where the expectations and hopes that we had 10, 20, 30 years ago have all fallen down the wayside in the wake of our relentlessly increasing emissions in the preceding decades. And of course also the presence of negative emissions technologies in so many IPCC scenarios. Basically this idea that's become so pervasive now that we will just suck loads of CO2 out of the atmosphere at the end of the century with technologies that are yet to be deployed at scale. This obviously completely blows up the idea of a carbon budget. It's like you can now loan money from yourself in the future if you want to keep the analogy of a budget going. If you allow yourself to imagine that you'll suck 10 billion tons of CO2 out of the atmosphere at the end of the century, and the only thing you care about is the cumulative emissions of CO2 by the end of the century, you can argue that it's still within budget to emit that CO2 now you're expanding that budget by borrowing loads of CO2 emissions from the future, which you trust they'll be able to pay back with negative emissions later on. Now you can imagine how attractive this policy of prevarication is towards economists with their models with economic discounting, which always argue that money today is worth more than money tomorrow because the economy will just carry on growing forever, and so you may as well invest your money today and get more tomorrow than spending it now. And you can also imagine how attractive it is to the politicians who can kick the job of cutting emissions down the road to someone who'll be in office a few decades later. They can say well really the problem is in inventing these technologies that can suck CO2 out of the atmosphere and not changing our behavior today. So negative emissions and the increasing dependence of the world on imagining them to meet the more stringent climate targets also blow up the concept of a carbon budget. And of course, we'll have to have another episode all about negative emissions. Probably several, because it's a topic I can really rant on, as you may already be noticing. Having spent nearly the whole episode then, explaining all of these disputes surrounding how valid it is to define a carbon budget, let's talk about the implications for what we think the budgets are. And for this, we'll just use the IPCC report ones. That 1.5c budget was 420 gigatons of CO2, In the 1.5 report from the start of 2018. In 2018 and 2019 global CO2 emissions were about 40 billion tonnes a year. Now I wrote this in June 2020, COVID-19 means that predictions for what CO2 emissions have been for the first half of this year are probably wrong so I'll just go up to the start of 2020. So from the start of this year we had 340 gigatons of CO2 left in the 1.5c budget. Now collectively Since 1750, humanity has emitted around 1.5 trillion tonnes of CO2, or 1,500 gigatons of CO2, according to Our World and Data. To date, around 350 billion tonnes has been emitted by the EU-28 countries, 450 by North America, 450 by Asia, and so on. In other words, If we want to stick to this 1.5c budget, then we have already emitted 82% of the CO2 that we can ever allow ourselves to emit as humans, and our emissions are higher than they've ever been, so we're chewing up the tiny 18% remainder of that budget faster than ever before. It's not looking good. The budget for 2 degrees is substantially higher, it's worth saying, around 1,100 billion tonnes of CO2 after the last two years. So that would amount to around 26 years of current emissions to have a 66% chance of staying below 2C of warming. Arguably then, this target is a little bit easier to achieve. Providing we can get emissions to zero not too much later than 2050, then we should be able to achieve it. Although obviously, given that emissions have grown exponentially throughout human history, aside from the COVID-19 pandemic and major recessions, that's easier said than done what can you do with the 340 billion tons of CO2 that the 1.5c budget has left now? You could have another eight and a half years like 2019. Since the average per capita emissions of a US citizen are 16 tons a year, if everyone on earth emitted as much as the US does, we would last only three years. For the UK, that would be around nine years. For China, that would be around six years. Now, Imagine dividing the entire carbon budget that we have left on an even per-person basis from tomorrow. Then each of the 7 billion people living today would get about 50 tonnes of CO2 to emit for the rest of their lives prior to hitting net zero. Now I don't really like this kind of personal framing of emissions because of course there are structural factors that we don't have personal control over that influence the CO2 emissions of our lives. You can't necessarily help it if the food that you buy from the supermarket has been flown in. But just for fun, that 50 tonnes of CO2 would let you fly from London to New York 50 times, or from London to Perth 15 times. A typical US vehicle emits 4.6 tonnes of CO2 per year, with a fuel economy of 22 miles per gallon, and driving 11,500 miles on average, according to the EPA. By the way, that fuel economy is just ridiculous. But a few years of driving then would take a significant chunk out of your own personal budget. If the only carbon emitting thing you did was drive that car you'd have 10 years of that left. When you look at this then you can see why we haven't done the obvious thing. Naively you might think that the idea for calculating a carbon budget might be to say okay this is the total CO2 that we can emit before exceeding the Paris target, let's find some way of dividing up that remaining budget between every country or even every person, and we can all be sure that we do our bit not to exceed it. Maybe then the Paris Agreement would involve binding targets on each country, so that if they did exceed their share of the carbon budget, they would have to be responsible for sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere. Or maybe they could trade permissions with countries that have successfully cut their emissions faster, so now there's an extra financial incentive for countries that can to cut their emissions more quickly then we'd be treating the remaining permissible CO2 emissions for what they are, a scarce resource. But you can see immediately why people have decided that this would be a total non-starter. Not only would people end up horribly squabbling over how to fairly allocate the budget by population, by GDP, by the nature of the industries that are dominant in that country, Do you take into account that some countries have economies that massively depend on fossil fuel exports? Should developing countries get a larger slice of the pie as they focus on economic growth and the health of their citizens, and because they're less able to invest in decarbonisation than wealthier countries? How do you account for the fact that China emits CO2 producing products that are ultimately consumed in the West? What do you do about international aviation and shipping Do you share their emissions evenly between the destination of the ship and the source of the ship? But there would also be incredible squabbling over how to actually define the budget. I mean, these different ways of interpreting it that we talked about would become way more political than they already are. Imagine if your definition of a temperature baseline was the difference between you being able to drive your car for three years or 20. You can suddenly see why that's such a big deal. It would also probably lead to regulations so stringent that most countries simply wouldn't sign up to them, and that is essentially, unfortunately, why this hasn't been done. Then you're left with this fundamental and depressing irony in the middle of action on climate change. Everyone says that they're committed to the Paris Agreement, but the Paris Agreement is voluntary, and the amount of action that you agree to take is voluntary, you set it yourself. So no one is telling you how their actions actually add up to achieving the Paris Agreement. No one is telling you what slice of the remaining carbon budget they're willing to take, and no one is credibly demonstrating how they will reduce their emissions to stay within their slice, or making a coherent argument that the slice of the pie they're taking is fair. So all of the countries in the world, with a couple of exceptions, have agreed to do something, but they haven't on earth agreed on a plan that adds up. doing what they're saying they'll do. And that's a problem. So let me take my favourite example here for a second, the UK. Now the UK is one of the few countries that has legally binding carbon budgets based on the Climate Change Act in 2008 for each five-year period. Although these budgets haven't yet been updated, and the Independent Committee on Climate Change says we're not on track to meet some of the more stringent ones, we can still look at them and determine how large a slice of the carbon pie the UK's own internal climate targets allocate to itself. Now it's a bit hard to be precise here because the UK recently changed the law so that the goal is now net zero by 2050 and that's an improvement on what it was before where we were only planning to reduce by 80%. However the more recent carbon budgets have not yet been updated to reflect this and the ones up till 2032 are already set in law. So what I assumed is that only the ones after 2032 will be updated and that CO2 emissions there will linearly fall to zero by 2050 from 2032. And if you take that into account, then it shows that the UK's legislation allows it to emit around 9.3 billion tonnes of CO2 from 2018 until net zero. So the UK's legislation has effectively allocated us with 2.2% of the world's remaining carbon budget for one5 This is despite the fact that we have just 1% of the world's population. Interestingly, we amount to almost exactly 2.2% of the world's GDP, so I wonder if this is a coincidence or not. I'm actually told by people who are involved in setting these targets that they came up with various different measures for how you could equally divide up the carbon budget, and then they sort of picked one that was in the middle of those. Um, I, I don't know the details of that process, but if someone listening does, then do tell me. If this is not a coincidence, and those in charge are consciously working towards this idea that a fair share is basically allocated by GDP, then you do have to ask about the questions of fairness and equity implied here. The UK's GDP is about on a par with that of India. India are probably overtaking the UK in GDP as I write this. So allocating future emissions out to 2050 means that the 70 million people of the UK get a pass to emit as much as 1.4 billion people in India. You can definitely argue about whether that is fair. And given that the UK has some of the most stringent climate targets in the world, and is generally considered one of the leading countries in mitigation compared to a lot of other countries, you can see the issue here. Even one of the developed countries that is good on climate, and has been pretty successful so far, although there's many flaws, but pretty successful so far, we're we're trying to take a, an arguably unfair slice of the pie for 1.5 in our rules, and this is a lot more stringent than many other people are willing to be. It's hardly even possible for me to work out what many other countries are intending to take as their slice of the pie in this world where we try and tackle climate change by dividing up the carbon budget, because a lot of people's plans aren't coherent enough to have any clue what they are intending to do. They don't even have legally binding targets, so it's not clear what they'll eventually emit. You could estimate it by taking countries that have net zero targets and assuming that their emissions reduce at a constant rate to get there, but I haven't done that for this episode. So what have we got to say on carbon budgets? Although they aren't ironclad, and never will be, they can illustrate in cases like this where current policies are unfair, lacking, or incompatible with the Paris Agreement on the world stage. They can tell us, given that we know how much carbon we have left to emit before we've broken the Paris Agreement, how rapidly we have to decarbonise, and they can give policymakers some guide on how much money they should spend on this if they want to reach the Paris Agreement goals. So this concludes the episode on carbon budgets, what they are, how they can be defined scientifically, how they influence climate policy, how it's possible to spend hundreds of hours arguing over their precise definition, why they should be taken with a grain of salt, and what they can tell us about how much CO2 we can emit to stay below a given level of warming. They are a useful tool, but don't let them, or misleading framings around 12 years left to save the climate, distract you from the simple message. The faster we act on climate, the less damage there will be, and the less dangerous things will be in the future. We know that acting on climate will save us vastly more money in the long run than it will cost us to fix the problem, We know that it will save lives and prevent environmental disasters from damaging the lives of millions of people around the world. We know that the consequences of failing to act will end up being disastrous, disproportionately impacting the most vulnerable, and making life in the future and for future generations far worse than it otherwise could be. We know that many of the measures we can take will result in a more sustainable, cleaner, healthier society. We know that in the midst of a Great Depression, there's a lot to be said for having a big, collective investment project to work on to stimulate the economy and to give people something useful to do if they're unemployed. And we know that doing so will wean us off fossil fuels that will eventually run out with volatile prices, other nasty health side effects, and geopolitical tensions being fought over the supply. So budget or no budget, what are we waiting for? Thank you for listening to this episode of Climate 101. By physical attraction, remember you can find us on the web at physicspodcast.com. There you will find the contact form. I talk about it all the time. There's a contact link in the top right hand corner of that page. You can talk to us. Let us know what you think about the episode. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, specifically given that I'm doing this series on climate change, I really want to know what people think of how I'm explaining this topic because we're going into Some quite sordid details here, uh, a lot more detail than um, I go into in topics that aren't my field of specialty. So, are you finding it interesting? Are you following along? What would you like to know? What are the most important things that I, I really want to be a resource for you guys to answer your questions about climate change and any questions that come up from listening to these episodes as much as I possibly can? So, do send those in via the contact form. There are plenty of other things you can do to help the show. You can review us on your podcast app of choice iTunes whatever it may be Uh, that always helps get some nice reviews for people finding the show you can recommend the show to your friends to people who may be interested as a learning resource for climate change I would really appreciate that if anyone is uh, looking to educate themselves on this topic you can engage with us on Twitter we're there at physics pod we have the Facebook page physical attraction we're also managing at the moment this science podcasts Facebook group which has lots of other science podcasts there and it's a good network of people so do get involved with that if that floats your boat. There are also options for you on the website to donate financially to the show if you want to support us and help us keep going. There's PayPal, there's Patreon, the bonus episodes are all there. You can subscribe and you won't be charged until we release another bonus episode, which will probably be ages, so you'll get a bonus episode for free due to the fact that I don't understand how Patreon works properly. Um, yeah, and of course the most important thing as ever is to tell other people to listen to the show if you would like to. We are a small community here. I do this for the love of it and for the love of the listeners and getting more listeners means there's more love. So until next time, sharing the love. Please take care.